Um, next week is Spiritual Renewal Week, so we won't have any classes at all. That's my one announcement for tonight. Okay. Do we have any questions from last week or any time? All right, then. We'll start right in. So, we are now on number 137. We're going through the cycle of Master's healings and various things like that. Quite interesting. Um, He says, During my 1935 visit to India, the Master told us, I was walking down the street in Serampore, where my guru lived, when I heard loud lamentations coming from a house. As it happened, this home belonged to the relative of a friend of mine. I went inside and was told this relative had just died. His family were all weeping. I went to the body and prayed deeply over it. By God's grace, the man was restored to life. Dr. Lewis told me many years later, I once asked the master, did you enter that home because of your personal connection with the man? Or was it because God told you to do it? The master at once replied, oh, because God told me to. Otherwise, I would not have gone in. No, it's... um, There's the statement in the autobiography of a yogi that thoughts are universal and not individual and that we are on certain uh, vibrations of consciousness and we move in response to whatever the impulses of those vibrations are. But all of us are subject at all times to these many cross-currents of ego or the many whirling vrittis in our spines. You know, in the, the vritti gets formed in the spine because there's some kernel of desire or attachment or you know, just, just some um, self-definition that we're not willing, we're not able to dissolve whatever it might be. So there's a, a center point of magnetism around which energy congregates because every time we have an experience that relates to that central core of magnetism, then energy builds up in that vritti. So as we move through this world, we're not a, a, a clear single ray of energy where this constant and actually quite varied and complicated collection of center points of self-definition around which a great deal of energy is whirling. So thinking about uh, the cauliflower robbery or the other story that we read about the man having, uh, master sending the man to pick up the older man who was coming up the road, making him take a different route, and master saying I had to work really hard to persuade him to do that. Well, I mean, if you, if you try to just picture what that would be like, Master is projecting a thought. And this individual, he sort of hears it, he doesn't hear it, but he has this strong center point of, I always take the other route. <laughs> I mean, as just as an example, or I'm late, or I want to do this, and I don't like that, or just whatever it might be. So there's this clear thought of Master's, but it gets all staticked because of all these other vibrations so that the, uh, the, the point isn't clear, that the thought can't quite blend. Think of the story in Autobiography of a Yogi where Sri Yukteswar was away 
and he said, I'm coming back on this particular train. And then he sent Yogananda a thought, I miss, I'm not on that train, I'm on the one after it. And his roommate refused to believe that Yogananda had actually gotten that message from Sri Yukteswar, went to the train, Sri Yukteswar wasn't on it, came back, and now he knew exactly what train he was coming on. But then later on, Sri Yukteswar says to the other disciple, I sent you a message, but you didn't get it. So it wasn't that the Guru wasn't trying to communicate, it was that the other person's vrittis were moving so continuously that that particular thought just couldn't get in there. Um, when there was a, a, a book of interviews of people, 30 years in community, I think it was called, and uh, Nishala interviewed a lot of people who'd been part of Ananda for a long time, and then wrote them up. It's a very nice book. She did a beautiful job. I don't know where it is in the great scheme of things, but it's out there somewhere and it's worth reading. And in it, a couple of people, um, just being in, in a jocular sort of way, it wasn't, it wasn't really disrespectful. It was just more being humorous because this was a, a verbal interview that she took. And, you know, you make jokes sometimes. If you're writing, you write more carefully. And both of them made, two people made references to Swami just kind of tossing them into some great project and then just leaving them to sort it out, like throwing them into the deep end of the water and just watching them swim. You may have heard this before, but when Swami read those interviews, he, was, he, he did not think it was funny. And he actually telephoned both individuals and he said like this, I did not. He said, I was always with you. And, uh, the, and he, he made them change it <laughs> because he, he was wrong. Now, and if they'd thought more seriously, they would have said that. They were just being joking. But even as a joke, he wouldn't accept it. And then in another context, he spoke of his way of leading is to project ideas into the ether, not just randomly, but to project ideas, project thoughts. And then if you are able, you pick up those thoughts. And sometimes you pick them up as in, with a feeling that it comes from him. But often, as he said, you just pick, the, as, as Swami put it, he said, it's a better way because then when you pick them up, they're your ideas. You know, where do, where do any ideas come from? We're always tuned into some level of influence. So for our, our teacher, our guru, to project ideas out for us is just giving us an opportunity to tune into that vibration if we are able to tune into that vibration. And so we find ourselves, those of us who, who try to live this way, um, often just having good ideas, whether it's for Ananda or for other things. And we, we don't really think about where they come from. We just know they're good ideas and we're going to um, go forward with them. And that way, let me think where, where I was with this one. Oh, yes. So then, um, I'll finish this one thought, then I'll give you a chance. Then you have Master, who has no conflicting cross-currents of ego. So wherever he is, he only gets one thought. And whatever that thought is, that is just the pure um, will of God, if you want to put it like that. But the, the best and highest in every situation is the only thought he's going to have because he has no conflicting vrittis that cause him to tune into any level of reality except that the highest. Yes, Tandava. So you're talking about Swami leading by 
projecting ideas into the ether. Um, if we are in a leadership position, how do we do something like that? Or well, do we at all? Or no, how do we approximate it? <laughs> he, he, he specifically said, um, he, he, in the context in which he said it, it was leadership training. It wasn't just, this is who I am. This is how one ought to lead. Well, one can do it in lots of different ways. To have a very positive, supportive attitude toward the people that you're working with is in, in itself projects an idea of confidence, of your confidence in them, of their capabilities in general. And if you have specific ideas or, or inspirations come to you, in addition to or instead of just calling them into the office and tell them, you know, just literally visualize what it is that you're thinking and see if we can all come to it. Um, you can experiment with it like that. It doesn't have to be... Um, if, if the team you're working with is right around you, um, Swami was always working with, you know, many people at a great distance. And it, it was simply wasn't reasonable, even, for him to co communicate in any other way. So he had to communicate in non-physical means. But he was also... And, you know, this is... I, I hear... It's not, it's not so simple for us because, you see, he was also training us in attunement. And there was a, a, an ongoing relationship uh, between everybody who was working for Ananda and him. And we were always trying to sort of do what we were trying to do in the context of uh, being in tune with whatever it was that Swami wanted. So we were looking for that radio station. So in terms of our... Um, our little spot in this cosmos. Well, you know, a lot of times you may have a good idea and you may even feel like it's an inspired idea, but it doesn't necessarily strengthen or help someone to announce that to them. So one may experiment with just holding the thought for a while and see if, or open the conversation but indirectly. And, you know, work together to see if you can find it. Um, I think you would just have to, to try it. It's, it's... See, I'm working between having a very specific idea and just act in general projecting the idea of all of us being in tune. You know, just projecting the, the fundamental idea of attunement. And people even trying to inspire people even to think in those terms instead of just thinking, what do I want? But um, what would be in the flow of what Master and Swamiji would want? If you could get them to agree to that, yeah. Well, parenting is actually an ideal place for it. And, you know, you, have to, you just have to constantly project a certain vibration because especially when the children are older... They won't take it from you. They have to find it for themselves. But if you're quietly holding that thought for them, um, then they're more likely to find it than if you're not. But the, the coercive element is always a... See, Swamiji was very detached, so there was no coercion to it. He just projected it because he knew it was right. And after a while, one got... You know, I, I certainly had the feeling over years of only sort of almost in retrospect a realization that I was always guided but I never thought I rarely thought of it like that I just had ideas I didn't know where they came from so 
Yes. Um, so to understand how if you are trying to lead people, what would be the difference between setting an example that they can, ah, this is actually how to be in tune and these are some of the things I can see those that are around Well, because it's a conscious, it, it, for, with Swamiji, it was a, it was a, a conscious um, projection of your energy and a conscious embracing, embracing people in consciousness. That's why Swami said, I never left you, I was always with you. So it, just because someone was hundreds of miles or even thousands of miles away, it, uh, Swamiji's awareness was always expanded to them, probably literally, but certainly from the perspective of here, if one's consciousness is always reaching out to the people um, with whom you are engaged and for whom you are responsible, and you're always projecting a, just, well, parenting is a good idea. I'm not, I mean, a good example. I'm not a parent, but parents don't forget their children. You know, there's just always this, your, your aura is just always out there with your children. As far as I can see, it never stops. And if you're in any way in a leadership position, especially if you're a, 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 a devotee and are trying not only to get a project done, but to help everyone, you, you always have a sense. And it's not always like you just have a list and you're going through everyone, but your, your whole way of being is your aura is out. And, and you're keeping your aura out. Your aura is always out and you're always moving the whole thing forward. And, and it's, it's not just that you have specific good ideas, but you're just projecting the idea of you know, that we're working together, we're working in an expansive way, we're being creative, we're innovating what we're doing. Or, and Swami didn't articulate it, but I sort of, I was conscious in retrospect of very feeling like I was very much on a track, but I wasn't conscious of it when I was moving. But only later did I realize the extent to which I, I was being moved even though it was exactly what he said I thought they were my ideas <laughs> and they were they became mine because they were never imposed I just and who knows what I didn't receive you know I, I mean actually, some of them I do know some of them I know the ones I that flitted through that I didn't have the power to take a hold of that I, I should have several important ones that he tried but I, I, I couldn't do it And others who just came out of the vrittis. <laughs> but they, they felt different in retrospect. Yeah, I could tell the difference. I mean, I can tell the difference. Yeah. It comes with experience. You just begin to feel it. And in terms of projecting it to others, it's, it's very subtle. I, I mean, you can see how much... I mean, I've been in a position of leadership for many years, and I can't really... Um, I can't really say that I'm doing that, and I certainly couldn't say how I'm doing it. I'm, I'm finding pieces of it. Okay, any other questions? Yes. Uh, we need to put you on the microphone, just because we have a lot of online viewers afterwards. Thank you. Just hold it close enough. Thank you. Um, so for uh, negative, what are, does that work with negative thoughts as well, if you have somehow negative thoughts do they get projected oh yes and how do you stop that <laughs> how do you stop yourself from projecting negative thoughts um, well there you have the whole spiritual path don't you how do you clean out the vrittis 
How do you dissolve that center point that keeps all that energy dissolving around it? Um, by the grace of God, an unrelenting effort on your part. And yes, your negative thoughts are projected just as readily as your positive ones. And they're received quite dynamically and they mess up a lot of stuff. And they mess you up above all. As Swamiji says, the, the power of whatever you do is most strong at the source. So if you yourself are projecting the anger or the disappointment or whatever it might be, somebody will receive it, but it will be diminished by the time it gets to them, but its full power will be in you. Um, but those vrittis, we, the, the, the vritti is just is like a magnetic field, and the extent to which we have built it up, it, that's, the, that's the amount of power that has to be generated to un, undo it. Except that the grace of God comes in and adds at a certain point. There's a, an unquantifiable um, God's grace aspect to it, which makes it not entirely mathematical. He, uh, as Swami said once, the law of karma works just a little differently once you have, once you become a devotee. Um, the, but the, the, the thing you try to do above all is not to add energy to it. So you get affirmations and you do kriya and you chant and you recognize that nothing good will be served by indulging in this reality. And even if you're inclined to do it, you remain uncommitted to it. I, I, you can commit certain actions without being committed to them. You can recognize that this is a tape running down rather than one I'm wanting to be re-recording. And that's, that's very different because you, there still may be so much magnetism there that it's going to keep running down. But you, if, you can pers if you can persuade yourself that you no longer believe that it's going to help you to keep going in that direction. Or maybe you awake from your false hypnosis every so often like uh, Piglet in the Pooh story who's just completely collapsed and then raises his little head and says, help, help, help. Then he puts it down again. But that's a very powerful prayer. So, and I was talking about this last night at East West as it happened. Once you absolutely realize it, this is in the autobiography, the inescapability of divine law. You, you need to become convinced and you have to just work at that that this really isn't going to bring me what I want. And when you're really convinced it doesn't bring you, it's not going to bring you what you want, you may still be powerless in the grip of habit, but you're no longer committed to it. So you work it stage by stage. And it takes us a long time to get in this much trouble. And so the mere kind of casual thought that maybe this was not such a good idea is not comparable to the amount of energy we put into getting into this much trouble. So you have to just respect your delusions. You have to realize this is, as Swami often says, this is a long distance race. This is not a sprint and, and this isn't a, just a, I don't get a medal just for showing up. <laughs> I really, I just have to undo it. I did it and now I have to undo it. And uh, it's hard. But once you're convinced of the inescapability of divine law, you think, what else am I going to do with my time? Because if I don't deal with this now, I'm just going to have to keep experiencing it. And is, you know, how is that working for me? 
And uh, it's very frustrating. We all shake our fists at the universe and want it to be different or throw ourselves on the ground and ask to be rescued. Um, neither of which works. So that's the inescapability of divine law. Or then we just take an incarnation or two out and we just drink. <laughs> and then that doesn't work either. You know, I mean, we just like... <laughs> I take a night off. This gentleman, who was a very integral part of Ananda many years ago, just showed up at Swami's house once, totally drunk. And uh, he wasn't normally a drinking... I mean, he, he, he had a checkered past, but he was pretty much past it. But once he, he just, you know, he just had a really bad day. You know, Swami just was very... He just sort of ignored it and just related to him and so on like that. And I, I don't think he did it again or did it very often again. It was just, you know, sometimes you just have to try one more time to see if there's an alternative <laughs> for a whole incarnation or for a week. And then you discover the inescapability of divine law. So, good question. Sure. Any other? Do you have to pass the mic across? Asha, I've heard it said that when Swami sent you and David and some of the other folks down here, some of the pioneers that he, he gave you the big vision of uh, a community down here in Palo Alto, but he left virtually all of the details to those of you who are pioneers to, to uh, make, make reality. Was he not therefore putting in the position of being truly the owners of the, all those details since you'd conceived them? Well, he didn't even give us a big vision. We said, uh, he said, Master's teachings are ideally suited for the people in this area. We need to raise the, I, I use the word profile, but I'm not quite sure what he used. We need to raise the visibility of Master's work above the horizon line so that when individuals in this area begin to seek, it will occur to them to look for Master because they'll see that Master is there. Um, we asked him, basically, is there any limit to what we can do? I mean, can we rep if we can replicate everything, should we? Of course, he said. But it was just wide open. But then when the question was asked, what should I do? He said, I don't know. After you're there for a while, you'll know better than I. I mean, but that was slightly ingenuous because he knew quite well. But he also knew, and I said, I was reading this, not in this book, but in another place. So I mean, was just, he was saying the... That when, he, when Master put him in charge of the monks, Master gave him very few specific instructions. He said partly because, and this was an interesting nuance on it, if he gave specific instructions, then it would be Master's, Swamiji's inclination to concentrate on those specific instructions. And Master didn't want him to do this or this or this. He wanted to get in tune with he wanted his disciple to get in tune with himself. Master wanted Swami to be in tune with him. And he also wanted Swamiji to get in tune with the flow of what was trying to happen. And to say, well, do this, and then do this, and then do this. You, you get fixated on those projects. And even if you make them work, you're training yourself. You're not training yourself in the same way. And he said, Master actually talked to him very little about what he was doing because it wouldn't have helped him to, to talk to him a lot about what he was doing. But he was constantly, Master was constantly 
inspiring Swami to lift his consciousness to the level where he would know what to do. And so, among the many reasons why there needs to be an Ananda, not just an SRF, is that SRF answers every question, not by giving you a principle or an idea of what might be true or a common sense answer. It's always master train those who were with them and gave them explicit instructions on how everything should be done. And Swami just says respectfully, no, he didn't. You know, he just didn't. And Swami was there for 10 years after Master died. There were, you know, just all the explicit instructions that are now used to silence questions and criticism just aren't there because it simply wasn't his way. Because what would you have if all you had was explicit instructions? I mean, what kind of a person is capable of following explicit instructions. Well, I mean, it's not, it's not like, it's not good to be able to listen to your guru and do what he says. That's a, I mean, that's a virtue. But what Master wants is he wants somebody who's like him. He wants somebody who can reach the same level of inspiration and intuition and power and confidence and faith in God and to be a channel Do you get there by having somebody give you explicit instructions for everything so that you you don't ever have to risk? You're always sure because I'm just doing exactly what he said? Or do you want to be able to learn to find it and feel it and move? And I mean, what if you're walking down the street and there's somebody dying in this house over here? Do you go inside or not? Do you have, what do you do? You go into like your Google and you question like July 31st, Sarampore, you know, dying person, and then you get your explicit instructions. I mean, it's, it's ludicrous. Obedience will help you overcome a certain amount of ego, but at a certain point it becomes counterproductive. So it's a very, you know, the, um, the differences are quite really profound. And go where you feel inspired but they're, they're, it's very real it's not just a matter of opinion or style and some people are very much more comfortable there and some of us wouldn't have lasted 24 hours because I would want a reason and I would keep after someone until they either gave me a reason or threw me out which would probably last a very short period of time but Swamiji gave us principles and explain to us how he arrived at his conclusions. And then there you are, and then you have all that information, and then you, have, you know how to think, or you know how to intuit, and then you have to figure it out. So you asked me some slight other question here. Yes, it makes it your own, because in the end, you really have had to uh, rise and fall repeatedly. Yes. Did you feel supported when you came here? Oh, always. I never felt alone. I mean, I never felt... I mean, I I was literally in touch with Swamiji a lot, but I've said to you all many times, in 25 years or so, once he told us not to do something, we were going to dissolve the ashram house before we had any place for anybody else to live, and he called up and he said, I really don't think that's fair to the people living there. Oh, okay, we were just going to move everybody into some random apartment house. He said, and he mentioned one particular person, and he was particularly, I'm very concerned about this one, very delicate lady. And he said, I just don't think it's fair. Okay. And once we, uh, I guess mostly it was no. 
once we were interested in this property to open a retreat. And he said, that would just pull the rug out from under the expanding light if you built a retreat down there. We thought it was given, being given to us. And it turned out they were selling it to us, which we couldn't buy anyway, but we thought it was being given. But even if it was given, he said, I just don't see, if you did that, it would just, you, you know, all the people come from there. He just didn't think it was a very good plan. I mean, maybe he had other reasons too, but he just said, I just don't think this is a good plan. But later he said, when we thought we might be able to build a retreat, he said, no, sure, go ahead. But did he ever tell us actually... Was he ever proactive to do anything? Nothing comes to mind immediately. I mean, that's 25 years. But it's not like we never discussed things with him or anything like that. But he just, it wasn't, it wasn't his way. It was, he was trying to build our judgment. And so he would, he, was, he would help us. And so then when we would discuss things, but when we would discuss things, it would always be on the level of we would have a discussion about the principle. And, you know, I would assert, we would assert how we were thinking about it, and he would respond to that. But that's how I always was with him. I would, this is what I'm thinking, and he would help me see why that was in tune or not. So, uh, in all the time that I was here, and was more in a more uh, influential position, uh, I really, I can, there really was hardly a time when I didn't have a context that related to what I learned from Swami. But even the variability to know that was part of the way he was supporting us, you know, because it wasn't like, again, that I could just Google through. But when something would happen, it would, it would, I could feel his orientation toward it. And then, not that I, by any means, had such <laughs> so few vrittis that I didn't interfere. <laughs> my vrittis made a hash of my intuition a lot. But nonetheless, there was always that... Um, I mean, it's interesting for me to say it, because I never actually thought of it like that. I always, I always knew that I could remember, but what I actually was is that I, I could find his vibration in the ether, and then that would tell me. So he was, that's exactly right. He was he was sending it, and there it was. And so I never I never felt on my own ever, because I was always just doing what he would what what I felt he would have done. And then sometimes I didn't, and then it didn't work. <laughs> sometimes it didn't work really big, <laughs> and sometimes it didn't work small. But still, it just didn't work because I deviated. Does that answer? Okay, so, number 138. There was a woman, the master said, who had been told by her doctor that one of her kidneys needed removal. She came to me for advice. After, after asking God, I said to her, why not check with several other doctors also? Don't base this important decision on the opinion of one man alone. She went to two or three others, all of whom gave it as their opinion that the kidney might be saved. I then suggested, this is interesting, first he sent her to other doctors, I then suggested she stop eating any form of meat and eggs and drink lots of grapefruit juice. Within a month, she was feeling well. She then went to the doctor who found that her kidney problem had completely vanished. Whenever possible, the master's cures were based on simple common sense. 
His common sense, however, had in it also the ingredient of intuitive insight. Thus, depending on the circumstances, he would recommend various approaches to good health. In his practical way, he endorsed the dictum, God helps those who help themselves. There's another interesting factor here because Master must have been able to intuit that the, the kidney wasn't so far gone, but she had that thought in her mind from that doctor that it was gone. So on one practical level, he's sending her out for a second opinion, but he may also have been sending her out to get other strong thoughts in her head because who knows if the grapefruit juice would work or not if she was holding the thought in her mind that the doctor said, I'm doomed or the kidney is doomed. I mean, none of that's explained, but it's just as likely part of what he was doing. He, he needed to break her own thought form and give her some hope to do this. And then he could give her the grapefruit juice. <laughs> and she had those two doctors saying it might be saved. Take away the meat. And who knows whether the grapefruit juice meant anything. There's the story in the autobiography of a yogi. Of, is it Lahiri who sends him over with the oil to put in the dead man's mouth? And as if the lamp oil would actually heal him because Sri Yukteswar needed something tangible to make it seem as if the master's energy was there. He didn't, it didn't, didn't make any difference, but the power of the mind is really terrific. I mean, they, they, the FDA doesn't advertise how many times, you know, the, they say, well, this drug was proved effective, but they often don't tell you how little is the difference between the placebo and the drug, <laughs> because many people, and they, they tell terrible stories about people being given uh, placebos instead of chemotherapy and they will still lose their hair. Yeah. So it's just like the power of the mind is really scary. Yeah. If we, just, we become convinced and we manifest that reality. That's why negative thoughts are not our friends. You know, you just want to do vigorous loud affirmations or chanting. I mean, that's when the vritti gets a hold of you and you suddenly find yourself sailing down a route you don't want to go. Just have a handy-dandy chant, which you just bring up and start singing it as loud as you can if you're in a place where you can or as intensely as you can. If you're not, you simply tune into another radio station. See, that's the thoughts are individual, not individual. We're just receiving them. If we're on the wrong station, we will get wrong thoughts. But there's nothing, there's, those thoughts, they don't exist and they're not us. We are just literally receiving them. And if we don't like them, and I certainly, a lot of really bad programs come into my head. And when I can just push that dial over, and sometimes it just has to be done forcibly with willpower, but it'll break it. And it may just, as soon as you let down, it may come right back in. But... God helps those who help themselves. <laughs> you just keep struggling against it. And at a certain point, God has mercy on you. And then it goes away. You don't know why, you don't know how, but it does. Eventually, God helps those. Here's right here. He endorsed the dictum, God helps those who help themselves. <laughs> what that means is those who make their, own, their best effort in attunement with God. Swami in another place defined to help yourself is to lift your consciousness to be in tune with God. That's what, you're, that's what helping yourself is. It's not drinking grapefruit juice or anything like that. It's, it's struggling against the temptation to let your consciousness fall 
away from your relationship with God. That's the super, that's the real effort. Everything else is just superficial to get you back to that. Get your radio station tuned back in. The radio, see, the, God's radio is always on. That was what we were saying about Master projecting these thoughts or Swami projecting. It's always on and it's always on full blast. Always. Infinitely. It's never off. It's never less with you. It's entirely and only how much static we're putting out and how carefully we've tuned in. I find that to be a comfort. Because then I say, oh, look at me. I'm listening to the wrong station. Whoosh. You know, my favorite program is always playing, <laughs> if I want to. All right. Any other questions or comments? On another occasion, a man complained to the master of a tricky heart. He was alarmed, however, to see the master pick up a pair of scissors. Can you imagine? <laughs> I know uh, I've been reading about that uh, healer in Brazil, John of God. Who's, uh, he, he channels healers from the astral world, who knows. And he actually sometimes uh, sticks tools. He, he puts tools up people's nose and, and he scrapes their eyes with knives and all kinds of strange things. He just comes at you with these tools. The, you know, the people who go through it, sometimes it hurts, but rarely. Rarely. I mean, it's just, it's completely strange. It's very, very interesting. He's been doing it for 30 years. I watch some of his I was very impressed he just has a beautiful vibration but you know there you are with master and you pick up a tricky heart and master picks up a pair of scissors I mean there's going to be just those few seconds but then worse master comes at him with the scissors you know like master's going to stab me in the heart can you imagine one time this was just one of those silly moments with Swamiji but uh, he had this uh, recording of Jacqueline Dupree who was a, a cellist she got MS and had a very short career because she lost her control. But there was a really beautiful piece that he had on a record. But this was many years ago on a record. But the piece that came right after it was very jarring and he didn't like it very much. So we were listening one evening to the, that beautiful piece and just as it ended, he said with some force, Asha, would you stop that? And I got was halfway to the record player and then just this terrible fear came over to me that what he was telling me to stop was like my whole consciousness in some way I just didn't suddenly didn't know what he wanted me to stop I said very just very like very tenderly you mean the record <laughs> he says yes the record <laughs> but it just oh, it didn't last long but it was one of those moments that <laughs> electrifies every part of you <laughs> so much anyway so this man Master picks up a pair of scissors and heads for his heart. And then Master actually says, don't be afraid. That's his next line. <laughs> Can you imagine? Don't be afraid. The Master reassured him, I'm not going to operate on you. <laughs> so Master anticipated too. What he did then was snip off a button from the man's waistcoat. Leave it that way, he said to him. Don't sew it back on. A few days later, the man returned. He reported almost incredulously, I am perfectly well again. The master then explained to him, I saw you fiddling with that button, which was right over the heart. That was why you felt an irritation there. When you were no longer able to fiddle with the button, the irritation disappeared. A simple cure indeed. Who, however, before that man came to the master, had even thought of that solution? It's a kind of a crazy story, isn't it? I guess he was always 
like this. Maybe it calmed him down. Maybe Master's Grace calmed him down. Who knows? But also just the... Um, because the pain was in his heart. It wasn't on his clothes. So, I, I mean, the direct... The, the nervousness of those fingers pointing at his heart all the time, constant direction of anxiety in that, in that way... There's so many interrelationships on this planet that we can't perceive. But just again, the master has no vrittis. And he has no, um, uh, you know, he, he, he sees it all as an energy pattern. If you see it all as an energy pattern and all as light, you just see how it all interrelates. So Amaji said, he said, just at a glance, I can just tell who people are. At a glance. He said, and then he kind of backtracked a little because he said it. He said it just like that, just at a glance. I can tell. Well, some of the time, <laughs> because sometimes he would make a statement like that, and then he would see me recording it, <laughs> and he would backtrack a little bit. But he just he could just know. So the master just sees it. He sees all these interrelationships, and we can too. It's intuition. You see, it's not reason. It's just Master saw the relationship between the man's hand on his heart and his heart. Then it was right there to be seen if you had the eyes to see it. So, number 140. The Master generally recommended a vegetarian diet. Dr. Lewis said to us, When I met the Master, I gave up eating all meat and fish. Sometime later, however, I began to suffer mysterious aches and pains in my body. The doctors could find no reason for them. Finally, I asked the master what I might do. Your body has grown accustomed to eating meat, master said. Its cells have been missing that diet. Once a week, therefore, eat a little lamb or chicken, no red meat, just lamb or chicken, or a little fish. I followed his advice, and in a very short time, all the pains went away. Um, you know, it's... Uh, there are many examples of how Master was really much more interested in what worked than the enforcement of his theories. Elsewhere in this book, I'm not sure whether we've read it or whether it's coming, Master said, you know, the first generation of people, he didn't even talk about vegetarianism. The second, he tried to guide them away from red meat. And it wasn't until the third generation of disciples that even bothered to say, be a vegetarian. Because it just wasn't the first thing they needed to do. It would be too hard, too distracting, too socially inconvenient. Um, when I, I'm old enough to remember what happened when I became a vegetarian, now it's common. But when I became a vegetarian, my relatives were convinced I would die. I had to... Um, I had to submit a complete list of everything I ate, which was then submitted to a doctor who pronounced it the healthiest diet he'd ever seen and thought I would live to be 100. And that was the end of the conversation. <laughs> but it was just that strange. So here's this you know, strange Satu from India with this long hair and this orange robe. Nobody's ever seen anything like that. It's not Silicon Valley 2016. It's 1920 Massachusetts. And he also is telling them, he starts by telling them no more roast beef on Sundays. It's just not the right starting point. The starting point is to get them interested and have them start having experiences and see, you know, just because of the pure heart, not a pure stomach. And, and it's important for us to realize, not that 
we should use that as license to uh, do things that are not good for us. But also, let's not ever get confused about what the main event is. The Master had generations of disciples that he didn't even really try to guide that way because it, it wasn't, it wasn't the, their next step. And it would come naturally as you refine, you begin to think of it. And, but Dr. Lewis, he had told to be a vegetarian. Or did Dr. Lewis say um, that he, well, it was just, I just missed it. When I met the master, I gave up all meat, eating meat and fish. So Dr. Lewis, and that was the 1920s, so I'm sure he spoke. I mean, you saw that master himself was a vegetarian. So it would naturally cross your mind that perhaps that was a good idea. So, yeah. Yeah, sincere. Well, well, you see, Dr. Lewis had such a deep and profound spiritual experience. He believed in Master completely. And you begin to, you want to be like he is. And, you know, you're sitting there having a big plate of fried chicken, chicken and Master's eating an eggplant. It might just cross your mind that there's something wrong with this picture. <laughs> you feel in that, in that company, in that company, your own sensitivity is greatly shifted. So that which you're perfectly comfortable doing by yourself, you suddenly see it in a different light. What happened to us with Swami sometimes, someone would recommend a movie, and all of a sudden, like in the first minute of the movie that you had recommended, you usually only recommended movies to Swami once, you would suddenly realize how really crude and unsuitable this movie was, but you hadn't noticed because it's, you just hadn't noticed. We're so accustomed to so much that's so gross. And then I remember I was saying about a movie that I'd seen that uh, Eddie Murphy, who's, you know, he's not always the most elevated, but he can be pretty darn funny. And I thought the movie was really funny. And I said to someone, you know, I think Swami would really enjoy it. And they just said, really? <laughs> and then I started just reviewing it in my mind. And I thought, no, actually, I think not. <laughs> Because it just we just pass it over, but many many things. That's where the I mean, there's many reasons why the company of an elevated soul changes us. But one of them is simply that it's just like our own vibration becomes so much more refined that we suddenly recognize that that which we were comfortable with an hour ago when we were alone, it we ourselves are not comfortable with it. It's not that he disapproves. It's that when we are shifted, it suddenly doesn't match us anymore. And, and we recognize I'd rather be like this than like that. I mean, that's one of, among many reasons why I always really liked Swami's company, was it just demanded so much of me. It just pushed me way up. And I had to be so awake and ready and listening. And not that I always was, but when I wasn't, I could see it. Whereas away from him... I could often roll on for quite a long time before I'd notice. But with him, I always, almost always, my, wait, that's way exaggerated. Eventually is the word I actually want to use. Eventually, usually. Except what I don't know. <laughs> Except what I never noticed and don't know anything about. So who knows? But it really, whoa, it just pulled straight up to your spine. I remember we're just talking of movies before we take a break. We took Swami Seva and I went with Swami to see Gone with the Wind, a movie which both Seva and I had just loved. 
and we took Swami to see it. We were so excited we were going with him. For some reason, I feel like we were in Palo Alto. Maybe we were, because we might have been visiting his parents. But we were just so, maybe it was Grass Valley. We were so excited, and we sat with him, and, you know, it started. And then he, he does this thing where he would fold his arms, and then you hear him do a double breath. And after not a very long time, he just sort of looked over at us like, can we go? (laughs) And then proceeded just to rip the movie to shreds, you know, the five minutes he'd seen and just how um, unsubtle it was and just a a thousand things. And, you know, it was like that. So sometimes you'd sneak off on your own, but, but it was just like, oh, yeah, as soon as he said it, why didn't I see it before? Because I was on another vibration picking up other thoughts. And I didn't feel uh, guilty or put down or anything like that. It was just, oh yeah, I hadn't really thought about it. And now in your company, I'm really thinking about it. And then you gradually begin to realize, again, what it feels like to think about things. And so the next time you don't just let that vritti suck you down. You, You try to keep your consciousness in there was another movie that we saw. It was Brother, Son, Sister, Moon. That was about St. Francis. And everybody loved that movie. And I actually went to see it. I, I played that one really cool. I knew it was a terrible movie from the point of view that Swami then slashed it to ribbons. He, he, he took a real stand on that movie. But I also loved being in the movie because it was about Francis and Claire and I was just so, it was so thrilling to be watching a movie that was about a great saint. The fact that they made him seem like a drug-crazed hippie who, who didn't know what he was doing and, and just accidentally kept having these miraculous experiences and seemed to worship the daffodils. Uh, you know, those are just a few of the things Swami said. Uh, <laughs> I noticed all that, but I just chose to have a really good time anyway. So I, I, I didn't criticize it, but nor did I recommend it, because I could see what was going to come. <laughs> I let others take the hit on that one. <laughs> okay, let's take a break. <laughs> I'm not even going to say the name, even though I might remember it, but most of the time, if it turned out to be not worth it, he would walk out. But uh, there was one movie that was absolutely horrible. It still haunts me. Horrible. No, it doesn't, actually. I think it's gone now. But I was just sitting there like, you know, and I just kept looking over to him. It was, um, uh, it was a war movie, and there was torture, and, you know, and how graphic that can be. I mean, this was the 70s. It probably looks really tame now, but then it was really graphic, and I'm... Oh, I'm super sensitive. And I was just sitting there like, you know, can't we leave? And Swami had his arms folded, but it was like this. And then I think after we walked out, you know, or maybe in the middle, I'm not sure, he said, sometimes it's good just to sit through things like that and see if you can just remain calm. And yeah, it was a big test because I didn't. It totally freaked me out. I've spent many, many years since that movie trying to face the images in that movie. Yeah, I mean, it was, it's been like a huge karmic thing for me. I actually think that I, I, I'm not so bad at facing them now. It's actually now that I think about it. But I, I would just, oh. There might have even been a double feature. It's hard for me to think it was a double feature. But I know there was certainly one that was awful. 
In the 70s, you know, movies were milder. They weren't as hard as they are now. Yes? Was it hard in that movie with all the graphic images because of the images or because of the having to see that kind of consciousness being expressed and to face it? It was all the same. I, you know, um, torture, uh, sadism for me, when I see deliberate cruelty, uh, that just, I really, I really freak out. I mean, if I see people suffering, that's not as hard for me as deliberate cruelty. So a lot of movies these days, you know, really play up the sadism. And it's just unbearable for me. I, I really can't do that. That's a real deep, undoubtedly, memory of having been subjected to that. Who knows? But it, it uh, takes me right to the ground. But less so. But I don't, I don't ever go anymore. There's a Karuna, who the gentleman used to live here. Uh, the only... The only movie classification more mild than A-rated, which is Asha, was K-rated for Karuna, because I liked Bambi, but he couldn't watch Bambi. <laughs> we parted over Bambi. <laughs> but I can't, I can't go. I do the, I do the, the own, the own mantra, you know. I, I cover my ears and close my eyes, or just walk out. I, was, I remember being somewhere and I just thought, oh, I don't have to stay here. <laughs> I can just leave. <laughs> it was such a freeing feeling. <laughs> but no wonder our world is such a mess. Look at what the movies are like. They're just horrible. And with that enormous power, they portray evil. And you think that doesn't make people evil? Come on. It's just like people say, well, it hasn't been proven. Oh, how stupid are you? You just it, 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 it anesthetizes people to it and it makes it attractive and it awakens some scars and it is just evil in every possible way. I remember Mother Teresa of Calcutta excoriating the Hollywood people. What are you people doing? You know, it was not widely re- reported in the press. Just a little tiny article when she came here. You know, they took her to Hollywood and all that and she just read the riot act to them. You know, you, people are just... So, I remember uh, Devarshi put it. He saw some movie that was called, you know, Double Chainsaw Murder of Children or something like that. I don't know what it was. And he just said, imagine a planet in which they make movies like that. Oh, we're living on it. (laughs) Like, imagine a planet where they do this. It's really, just think about it. Why they would do things like that. Oh, and we're living on it. But we're here to help. Thank you, God. All right. Shall I go on? Um, Here it is about the vegetarianism. 141. The master remarked during the later years to my first generation of students, I didn't say much about a vegetarian diet. It wasn't that he didn't mention it, but he didn't emphasize it. It was too unusual then for the people in this country. Diet was secondary in importance anyway to the teachings of yoga. For the next generation, I recommended that they eat less meat. Most of them, on an average, became healthier. For this third generation, I've recommended a completely vegetarian diet and find that of the three groups, the present one is the most healthy. So that's a good way to put it. I don't care much, however, for that word vegetarian. Too many people are fanatics on the subject. Um, I've coined what I consider a better word, proper (laughs) etarianism. 
which is, you know, at a, there were lots of different fads that would go through the community. And uh, there was a, the water fasting fad. That was one of the ones that Swami really spoke against. Just people would just get, you just get on it. And you start thinking that this is the way. Master Swami himself says he was persuaded to do, go on the grape cure when he was first in Mount Washington. And Master indicated that it wasn't such a great idea. And Master, do you want me to stop? That's what Swamiji said. And he says, well, you set your will to it. But he, you could see that he wasn't thinking that we should go that way. But, but obviously what he keeps mentioning is health. Because if you're not healthy, for almost everyone, that's an obstacle to meditation. It certainly makes life in meditation more difficult. And if you can um, keep your body in better shape by the way that you eat, it's certainly a good idea. Diet is by no means the only karmic condition that creates illness. Um, But it's one that we have some control over. But proper diet won't necessarily ensure health. People get sick all the time for many different reasons. Okay, 142. Lahiri Mahashaya was a vegetarian, the master said. Master told me. Although where other sensibilities were concerned, he wasn't rigidly so. One evening he attended a dinner that happened to be attended also by my uncle Sarada. Fish was the main course. Many Bengalis, you know, consider fish almost part of a vegetarian diet. My uncle, knowing that Lahiri Mahashaya was usually very careful of his diet, wondered what he would do on this occasion. As they were eating, Lahiri Mahashaya leaned forward so that my uncle could see him in the line of guests. They may have been sitting on the floor like they do. And called out, you see, Sarada, I am eating the fish. <laughs> I mean, like, why? <laughs> Perhaps the hostess, he would have, it would have been awkward. He probably was the guest of honor and he didn't, see, that's why he said he was uh, conscious of other people's sensibilities. He didn't want to make a scene, make them imagine if you were the host and, and he, you had invited them there as a spiritual figure. And then all of a sudden you realize what a terrible faux pas you've made. It could have been very difficult. So for Lahiri, conceivably, I'm just speculating, taking in the fish was far... Um, it just didn't matter compared to injuring some sincere persons you know, they might never have recovered from the embarrassment of it. People can become extremely sensitive about their mistakes. And why he leaned over to tell Uncle Sarada that he was eating the fish, who knows? There it is, Echo here. Uh-huh. There also an episode where um, Master went to a restaurant and they served him some... Like cream like chicken, chicken or, something. or something, yeah. yeah. Cream chicken, and there was a woman with him who made a huge scene about... Uh, you know, how dare you serve us this? And it wasn't clear to me whether Master ate the chicken or just pushed it to the side. Yeah, just off to the side instead of making such a scene. But, you know, as a vegetarian, when uh, bits of chicken arrive in your dish, if you're not used to eating it, it's, it can be a little startling. So, you, you know, even to just pull them out, depending on how sensitive you're feeling, is not so much fun. So Master set you know, a real example. It's just, it's just not that important. Um, I don't see that kind of um, energy going through our community very much, but I certainly have seen it go through Ananda communities a lot um, in, the, in years past, just wild, intense um, 
fanaticism on, on a really, really grand scale. So all of this uh, sometimes is very, very important to keep straight. I mean, I went through it, but actually I don't have to look farther than myself. That was me. When I arrived, I was very fanatical and very strict and very confused about the relative importance of diet. I think it was probably the only actual self-discipline I was capable of, so I was really I was really keen on doing it to the max because you know everybody has different things, but a simple diet for me is not a hardship. Just it's just some things are harder for others. I mean other things that are easy for other people are very difficult for me, but a simple diet is not. So therefore I seized it with all my might. <laughs> Because look how I can excel at something. (laughs) I may not be very nice or very devoted, but I don't eat sugar. (laughs) Swami just, you know, he got my number right away. (laughs) And proceeded to dismantle it. Fortunately, I went along. All right, shall I go on? Um, Number 143. There were two ladies the master related to us one day who used to leave their car unlocked, even when parking it on the street. I said to them, you should be practical. In public places especially, there may be thieves about. Where is your faith in God, they demanded airily. People didn't always know who they were talking to. Master was very humble, and so they felt they could lecture him. I have faith in God, I replied, Master replied, but I don't expect him to do everything for me. That would be presumptuous. You should rely also on your own common sense. Well, they wouldn't listen, but continued to leave their car unlocked. One day they purchased several expensive paintings and left them unprotected on the back seat of their car. When they returned, they found that the paintings had been stolen. It upset them terribly. The next time they saw me, they related their tragedy to me. I said, perhaps you'll understand now the importance of cooperating with God's grace. Remember what Jesus said in the wilderness after Satan tempted him to throw himself off a mountain just to prove that God would protect him. He said, it is written, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. In future, be more careful and don't tempt God. That is, don't ask him to do favors for you that you can do perfectly easily for yourself. And that's very interesting. But there's another paragraph here that made the most impression on me this time. There is an interesting sidelight to this story. It concerns the emotional upset of those ladies over the loss of their paintings. Their distress suggests, obviously, an emotional attachment. For faith to be true, however, one must place everything in God's hands, not only the safety of his, not only the safety of his possessions, One should be sensible, but at the same time he should be non-attached. True faith in God is unconditional. Its consequences never distress the mind. The Master taught always, therefore, the importance of combining common sense with equanimity. This This was very helpful to me. I'm not sure how many times in this class, but I've certainly thought about it many times this whole expect a miracle attitude and the way it captures us I mean I'm not sure how recently I discussed it in here but 
when people feel that if they don't expect a miracle, let's say a cure for illness or a miracle rescue in terms of money or whatever it is, it indicates a lack of faith in God. And so even against all common sense, people will cling to the idea that God can always work a miracle. But, but what he's touching here is a little nuance in that that helps me put it in perspective because sometimes, and I'm not going to say always, but sometimes what's actually being covered with that is tremendous attachment to a certain outcome. And, and that's the edge of it that makes me feel uneasy. Because I've always had a hard time understanding why people's strong assertion of faith would make me uneasy. It was, and it's, it's similar, although it's not the same, but during the time that we were engaged in the lawsuits, um, there were people who would always talk about harmony and love are the highest value. But I could feel that they weren't really into harmony and love. They were afraid of conflict. And, and fear of conflict is not the same as being into harmony and love. And so here what's described is they assert that they have absolute faith in God, but when it doesn't go their way, they're thrown completely off balance. So we, we get attached to God making it a certain way, and we call that faith. But true faith is, is not mentally distressed by the outcome. So if we really think that my life is in God's hands... I can fully believe that he could cure me if he wants to, but there's no bias in favor of that. It's just, I fully believe he could cure me if he wants to. I fully believe he could rescue me if he wants to. And I'm going to do everything I can to bring about a sensible outcome, but my faith is not dependent on the result. And if you really are like that, then there's no edge to it. You know, it just, it's just a completely natural reality. He can do anything. Maybe he will, maybe he won't. I won't be mentally distressed, whichever way it goes. So we, it, it, it's, um, everything is very subtle. And it, it's never a dogma. This goes back to what I was saying earlier about you can't just have explicit instructions for everything because as soon as you're off the grid, then what happens? You know, what have you, what have you really gained trust in? Of course, people will put themselves um, Swamiji commented once that uh, whenever a, a, a nun leaves her convent it, you know leaves that to go back to a lay, a, lay, a lay order life he says the first thing she'll do is find a priest and put herself under obedience to the priest <laughs> meaning that that it's just necessary and it's inappropriate it's not like it's uh, it's not like there's something bad about it but it just simply is what it is. And it's not, uh, it's not the be-all and end-all of everything. Yeah, Gary will take care of it. Okay. So any other, any questions or thoughts about that? Referring back to that last conversation, this is 144. I don't know how far we'll get because it's long. Referring back to that last conversation, it must be understood that divine principles need to be applied variously also according to one's own level of consciousness. On another occasion, the Master told us a story about Tulsidas, a great devotee of Rama, the hero of the Ramayana. Many people in India look upon Rama as the Lord himself in human form. 
Tulsidas, said the master, was the priest in a temple that housed several priceless gold objects. Often when he meditated, he would become so immersed in ecstasy that he became oblivious to everything else. Yet he harbored still a slight concern for the safety of those gold objects to which he was responsible, for which he was responsible. One day a stranger, dressed like a gentleman, approached Tulsidas and said, Sir, I am a humble devotee desirous of worshipping in your temple. Every time I try to enter it, however, I find the way blocked by that fellow standing guard at the entrance. He won't let me pass through. Tulsidas, knowing that there was no such guard, inquired, What does this man look like? Well, he's dressed somewhat picturesquely in an antique style and holds a large bow, which is, of course, the picture of Ram, Rama, Lord Rama. Tulsidas, when he heard this description, was overwhelmed with joy and devotion, for he understood that Lord Rama himself, for his devotee's sake, had been posting himself at the temple entrance to protect it while Tulsidas meditated. It's a marvelous story. I will ask him in future, said Tulsidas, to let you pass through. The thief, which of course he is what he really was, came the next day and entered freely. He snatched up every gold object in sight, then took to his heels. Tulsidas saw him running away and went inside to see what had been stolen. There he saw one gold object left, which the man had overlooked. Picking it up, he ran after the thief. Wait, he cried, wait! Finally, he caught up with the man and said, Here, friend, you forgot this one. <laughs> the thief, confronted with such extraordinary forgiveness, recognized in this example of perfect non-attachment a quality so inspiring that he was overwhelmed. He returned to Tulsidas everything he had taken. Now, you see how different the energy is? You know, Tulsidas had complete faith in God that God was going to do what he wanted. And, but Tulsidas was protecting the gold items. You have that whole part where he, how did he not know the man was a thief? But maybe he recognized him as a fallen disciple that he had to rescue. And this was the way he knew he was going to rescue him. But with the others who, were, who had no evidence of God's protection, but that word presumptuous is a very interesting word. They merely presumed that God would take care of everything. You see how easily the mind can just get a little confused? Why wouldn't God take care of everything? Well, that, that line in the Bible, thou shalt not tempt God, which is why would you ask him to take care of things that you're perfectly capable of taking care of yourself? And that, that fine line is where are you perfectly capable and when are you not trusting? Uh, and, and it all has to be applied on its own level. There was a local man here um, many years ago, I participated in the uh, Palo Alto Clergymen's Association, or whatever they called it, Minister's Association, PAMA, Palo Alto Minister's Association. And so I got to know a number of clergy people in the area over that period of time. And there was a man who had a more, more or less fundamentalist approach to Christianity. But he became ill. I think he actually had cancer. But he just conceived of this idea, and with various scriptural uh, quotes to back him up, you know, that God would cure him and that that was the medicine he should take. I never actually, I have no idea what happened to him because I just saw him once. But you, again, you could feel it. You could feel while he was speaking 
that there was something off. And I think that word non-attachment is really the actual right word. And it's it, if you're non-attached, it's not presumptuous because you're acting, um, you're really surrendered. But these women were very attached to a certain outcome and they were attached to proving it, even to the point of saying, where's your faith in God? When Master was teaching them, people would try to instruct Swami a lot. I remember people instructing Swami on some point of Dharma and I... I um, I said to the man, who taught you even the principle of Dharma? <laughs> Did you know it before you met Swami? <laughs> what are the chances that he doesn't know what you're about to say to him? And we get very confused. Yes. I noticed um, that about Tulsidas, it said he had a slight concern for the gold items for which he was responsible, exactly. which is a different kind of attachment than these paintings that I just bought. Exactly. And all why Rama was helping him out because Tulsi Das was trying to be responsible and do his part in protecting the property of the temple. Yes, exactly. No, that's exactly right. And it was um, interfering slightly with his ecstasy. You know, he wasn't able to completely forget everything because he had to keep a little piece of his mind on those gold objects. It's a funny story, which is why he was probably so relieved to have them stolen. (laughs) realized how much Rama was helping him out like he did his part and God was doing his part and that's it seems like that's when it finally the last bit clicked for him and you know his faith in God was justified he thought oh it really does work out uh, you know as God wants it to and if God wants to let him in and take all the stuff then you know he's he can do it either way and it's up to God Exactly, and that's where Swami introduces the story by saying these truths have to be applied variously depending on your own level. And that's why it's, um, I mean, I remember the story is long, but the end point of it was Swamiji can give away all his money and know that God will take care of him. And he's not being presumptuous. He just knows it. But others can't. I mean, there was this, uh, there was a woman who, who was at Ananda for a time and she had a, a reasonable amount of money. She'd inherited a, a, what for then, the amount now doesn't seem like so much, but at the time it seemed like quite a lot. And uh, people were pestering her. Swami became very stern about it. It was totally wrong. And, and people were lecturing her about her, what she ought to do you know, and what her non-attachment. And Swami said, you know, it's just, he, he sort of said, what, you know, what would she do if she didn't have that money? It's not like she has the consciousness where she would be able to let go of that money and be all right. She would, it would, she would disintegrate. She needs that money. It's just completely wrong to try to tell her to have an attitude toward it that isn't her attitude. It's not even helpful to her. It's just the wrong teaching. And, uh, yeah, he was right. It's what's called true but highly irrelevant spiritual principles. <laughs> you know, it's not that it's a false teaching, it's just not the teaching for her. And in a completely other context, Swami was describing his own state of renunciation to a group. But then he said, don't even think about living the way I live. He said, one, you couldn't do it, and two, it wouldn't be right even for you to try. So he was, he was wanting people to 
actually be at peace with where they were. It's sort of like a, this last story, this uh, young man is coming into an ashram and he, uh, he sees everybody working hard and doing all this seva and working in the kitchen and cleaning the ashram and cutting the wood and carrying the water. And the guru is just sitting there the whole time. He's sitting there. And so the, uh, the, the prospective resident said he would rather come in as the guru than as one of the devotees <laughs> because it just looks like an easier thing. But uh, another in that context where somebody was trying to be the guru when he wasn't qualified and wanted what the guru had, wanted to eat what the guru ate. That was actually it. So the guru said, really? And then he picked up a handful of hot nails and ate them and then, you know, handed it here. When you can do what I do, you can do what I do. And that's sort of how we have to balance it. We have to, common sense, Master said it over and over again. Plus, uh, calm acceptance of our own reality without embarrassment. You know, I, I'll, I'll push the edges, but I can't throw myself off a cliff. But for another person, you throw yourself off the cliff. That's just the way it goes. Somebody else that I know of who had quite a bit of money, Swami just called and said, give it to me. <laughs> You know, I mean, not, he didn't demand it. It was there to be given, but some was given and then some was held back. And Swami called and said, no, I need it all. But that was right. That was exactly the right thing for that person. It had nothing to do, it was just, yes, you can do this, just give it. Why are you holding it back? Just give it. Just right. But with that woman, it was like, no, leave her. Fascinating. Okay. Um, We just finished... 144, and we started at, let's see, we started at 137, and we went all the way through 144. Okay, thank you all. Next week is uh, Spiritual Renewal Week at the Village, so no class here.